Okay, so can you just start by saying your name and what your current position is and your association with Oxford University? Thanks, Georgina. So I'm Sheetal Prakash Silal. I am an associate professor in the Department of Statistical Sciences at the University of Cape Town in Cape Town, South Africa. And I'm also the director of the Modeling and Simulation Hub Africa, which is a disease modeling institute uh, based in the Department of Statistical Sciences at UCT. I've had a long running a relationship with Oxford University for the last uh, 10 years or so. Um, with uh, many collaborations in disease modeling over the years, um, working with colleagues from Oxford University and in projects that are led by Oxford University around the world, supporting malaria modeling. Um, but more recently from 2017, I've been appointed as an honorary visiting research fellow in tropical disease modeling in the Nuffield Department of Medicine. That's great. That's very comprehensive. Thank you. So um, without telling me your whole life story, but going back to the very beginning, how did you first get interested in science becoming a becoming a research scientist? Um, so I was uh, I have quite a varied background. Whilst I've always been good and good at maths and drawn to 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 the subject of mathematics and the application of mathematics. And one of the most well advertised routes to apply your mathematics when you're in school is to follow a path of uh, in, in the finance world, uh, and that's what I did. I my my undergraduate degrees were in actuarial science, um, in quantitative finance and statistics. But I was very bored um, in the field, not with the math mathematics, but with the application of it, I didn't find it attractive at all. And when I moved across to the statistics department to do a master's degree in operations research, I came across a variety of other ways in which one could use maths to do problem solving. And, and which, then which, happened insti which institution were you in at the time? At University of Cape Town. At, at, at the University of Cape Town, yes, yes. Um, and we uh, and at that point, I uh, came across a few publications on using disease, um, using mathematical methods to, to manage disease. And that was uh, very interesting. And I was drawn into public health immediately. I also at the same time was um, whilst doing my master's was working at a health economics unit uh, based at the School of Public Health and, and Family Medicine at the University of Cape Town. And that gave me my first foray into looking at the into working with public health data and having your work uh, make an impact very early on some of the statistical work I did in maternal health was referenced by the WHO in forming guidelines um, and so on and so I got to got to understand that that even quantitative applications um, in, in health can make a can make a difference and that's how I got drawn into um, data-based evidence uh, evidence making um, in in health. Mm, mm. So can you give me an example? So, I mean, what what if you, you so malaria has been an area, a big area of interest of yours. How is data science applied in trying to understand and grapple with the issue? Oh, no, let's start with another question first. How, how big a public health issue is malaria uh, at the moment um, globally? Sure. Uh, so malaria is, would you believe that malaria is um, curable and preventable for the last 4,000 years or so? But in the last year, we had 247 million cases worldwide. Malaria is also not just a problem with morbidity that uh, largely children uh, die from it, um, uh, but it, sorry, mortality rather, but it's also a great problem of morbidity in that it's a disease that's linked to poverty and it makes one ill where you can't go to work 
and if you can't go to work, you can't earn a wage. And if you can't earn a wage, this vicious cycle of poverty continues. And so you find malaria is a massive global health problem. And in the last 10 or 12 years, um, or perhaps actually a bit longer now, almost um, uh, yeah, uh, a bit longer, 15 years or so, we've had a global push uh, of political will towards um, eliminating malaria from the world because it is preventable and treatable. One feels like this should be an easy problem to solve. It most certainly isn't. Um, but because of all of this political world, countries are doing their best to try eliminate malaria. And so all scientific hands are on board. Um, uh, and and uh, in order to support decision making to to achieve this goal. And yes, so go back to my previous question. Yeah. How does data science and statistics uh, contribute to that goal? So it's uh, it's not obvious actually. The you know we have you have data that emerges from the management of malaria. So malaria in many cases is in many countries is a, what you call a notifiable disease. So anyone who presents with a malaria case has to notify the government, and records are kept. Probing questions are asked. The demographics of the person in question, their travel patterns, and so on, are all uh, are all recorded. But then if we have to make decisions on the many tools that can be used to combat malaria and decrease malaria incidence in country, it comes down to a question of how best can we spend the limited part of money that we have um, or how... Um, uh, you know, uh, resources are one thing, but but from a health perspective, what is the most impacting uh, impacting uh, intervention? Should we be using bed nets? Should we be trying out a certain drug? Should we be increasing access to healthcare or improving improving uh, surveillance systems? These are all questions that we can use mathematics to solve, and we do that by creating a simulation or a virtual reality of the malaria situation on the ground, accounting for not just how malaria, malaria transmits from mosquito to human, back to mosquito and so on, but also the health system challenges that a country is faced with and the population behavior and demographics um, and so on in a, in a country. So we basically build this whole world, this whole health system and world of um, malaria um, on a computer. And then we try out various interventions. We can ask ourselves if we were to increase bed net coverage, what would the impact and the cost of that be? And we can do so in a fraction of the time it would take to implement a full clinical trial. And so there are many savings that one can make by building simulations um, using mathematics. Um, and so through, through the systems of, of equations and computer code, we are therefore able to generate many cost savings and support better scientific understanding of how malaria transmits. And so that, that enables us to be able to combat it from a more informed perspective. So you say you've, you've been saying we, you yourself are based in South Africa, but um, there are, I understand you're part of a, a global collaboration. What, what other parts of the world have you uh, collaborated with and have you have you actually been based yourself elsewhere? Um, I've been based in South Africa um, uh, for mostly patriotic <laughs> reasons, um, uh, but I've worked and the, and the beauty of collaboration is that you do get to work all around the world. So with my colleagues at, uh, at Oxford University and at other universities, we have done malaria investment cases for the 22 countries of the Asia Pacific 
for example, um, I've led an I've led investment cases on in the Guyana Shield, so the uh, countries at the top of South America. May for many countries in Africa, for many um, uh, other groupings um, in in Melanesia, and so on. So we've actually done a range of malaria investment cases and other disease um, disease based work all all around all around the world. So in terms of a global consortium, when I say we, I was referring to modelers in, in general. Um, there are groups of malaria modelers, there are individual malaria modelers, um, a, a network of Oxford modelers and myself and economists and modeling is very much a multidisciplinary field as, a, as you can understand. And so we, we often band together to perform these investment cases all, all around the world. So um, I think we're moving towards um, um, COVID now. Yes. Um, so where can you remember where <laughs> you were um, when you first heard that there was something going on in China uh, and how soon yeah. you became aware that this was something that your skills were going to be needed to, to address? It was almost immediately. It didn't take more than a week or two before the WHO called me. Um, and uh, they were assembling a, a task force of modelers around the world. Um, and I had previously met the head of the global emergency response um, at the World Economic Forum in 2019, earlier that year in July, and we became well acquainted. And so uh, late in December of 2019, when COVID was still SARS-CoV-2 was still called um, uh, SARS-NCOV or something like <laughs> something like that. I can't actually even remember the old name now. It had a, it had an old name and it was still very much um, zoonotic transmission from 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 wet, the wet markets and so on. Um, that I was called up to be one of two Africans who were on the on that task force, and it was a, a group of models from around the world, all just sort of learning, coming together, and just understanding what data was being collected on the ground, trying to make sense of it. Uh, it was still very much um, a, a, a European and an Asian problem at the time. There was there were perhaps only one or two cases yet in on the African continent. Um, did we imagine that we would be a global pandemic to the extent that we have actually seen now? I think no. At the time, you know, we that that was a time when you still thought it was by understanding the chain of transmission that yes, it would spread, but it wouldn't be um, you know quite so catastrophic with so many variants and so many iterations. Um, but that, that was a, it was very soon that I was involved in in COVID back in December of 2019. Uh, I was in South Africa at the uh, at the time, um, and in uh, the first case arrived in South Africa, and I say arrived because it was via international travel. Um, that first detected case was a uh, was was picked up in South Africa on the fifth of March, twenty twenty. At that point, I was also already alerted by my own government to um, uh, be requested to develop models. Uh, so modelers were among the first people to be to be called because this was exactly our the the, the time for when our skill set was was needed. And my previous work in malaria actually with the South African government was the reason that I was I was called on. I didn't have to approach and and um, uh, showcase my skills to government. Rather, it was a case of government calling me to say. Um, can you build us a COVID model, um, and uh, uh, and uh, you know what is it going to take? Um, and so we started very early 
in in March when the first few cases still only international no local transfer local transmission was noted yet um, but we were already involved so what were you putting into your model if you had so few cases what other factors were you able to build into your model so the scientific evolution of model building in COVID, it, it, it really did change over time and it changed quite rapidly. So stage one or stage zero, perhaps we could call it right at the very beginning, we have no local data. So the best approach of modeling in the setting then is to see what data is available around the world and then to call on local experts to translate that data as to what should be appropriate for your models. So very soon in South Africa, we established in same in March of 2020, we established what we know as the South African COVID-19 Modeling Consortium. That is the SACMC. It was a group of modelers in country and local scientific experts, so local clinicians, public health specialists, virologists, intensivists, and so on. And so we would amass data like, for example, people with severe illness in the Netherlands were spending up to 23 days on average in hospital uh, in an ICU bed. Um, now we could put that information into our models and that, and that would take up all our ICU resources very quickly in a model. We consume all resources very quickly for the simple reason that admissions are staying for long periods. But in speaking to intensivists who are working on the ground in hospitals around the country, they would say that it is a practice in South Africa. We have a much higher threshold of entry. Uh, into into an ICU setting and nobody will spend more than eight days in ICU because nobody can afford it. Even medical aids will not afford it. So therefore, we can't use 23 days as a reasonable estimate for South Africa, though it is in practice overseas, we will use seven to eight. And so we had this process of translation of the profiles. And at that time, there were some some evidence coming from the WHO Commission in China to say there's no such thing as asymptomatic cases of COVID. And then at the same time, there was conflicting evidence from a bunch of other sources to say that 80% of the Diamond Princess, you might recall that uh, that ship, 80% of the Diamond uh, Princess uh, cases were asymptomatic. And now you're sitting basically with a piece of data that says how long is a piece of string um, <laughs> and you've got to now um, translate that and so as a modeler we uh, I made it very clear that that is not my responsibility to translate that I need to I'm not the expert clinician who will know what that best practice is I will put it into the models so that is where the value of having a multidisciplinary team like a full consortium with many scientific partners became so useful so that was a in the very beginning, look at what data was emerging quite literally on a daily basis um, and, uh, and, and adapt your models. And so it became important, number one, to be an experienced modeler. Uh, you couldn't ask a novel a, a novel model a novice modeler rather you couldn't ask a novice modeler to develop a model for your country with your population demographics uh, on the go. My colleagues at um, CMMID in in the United Kingdom had a model, you know, a respiratory flu model that was in development for twenty years that they could just, um, uh, you know, uh, adapt to COVID almost immediately. Uh, in our case, in South Africa, being an LMIC, we don't have ready-made models like that for the simple reason that we don't have data for the population for 20 years. Having gone through apartheid and so on, there isn't reliable data to enable such a model to be developed. And so 
I, from my malaria days, had a provincial, uh, a model at a, a subnational level already quite well developed that I could adapt very quickly within a, within a few days um, to then be presenting and, and incorporating all of this new, new information. Um, and so it became a process of adapting your models every few days in order to bring take into account new papers that were being that were being generated uh, and then adapting when those papers got retracted because they were errors because new information had come out um and checking was done you know you you learned quickly about how you, that you had to rely on preprints but you had to be aware um you know that that this was quite that this was gray literature um, and had not been through a peer review process, but there was no time to wait for eight months for a peer review process to, to happen um, because, because um, government needed answers immediately. And were the government making policy decisions on the basis of your model, uh, even yes. as it was evolving? Oh, absolutely, and that was um, that was one of the, the 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 key takeaways, and and one of the one of, one of the best parts, I think, of being part of this modeling consortium. That number one, it was commissioned by government and coordinated by government, uh, and so when government takes the first step, there, there's already that setting up that pathway to decision making, almost that pipeline of scientific evidence to decision making. And uh, whilst uh, you may say, you know, um, some governments may be angry that your, your, your model output keeps changing and your projections and your output will keep changing, they themselves were aware of the changing situation and appreciated that we would update every single, that we would update our, our models every single week and that things would in fact change. I think they would have been more suspicious if it didn't um, than the fact that it, that it did. Uh, at the same time, that we would we would put forward our caveats, our disclaimers, because we also have to protect ourselves professionally as a scientist. That we would have to say that if we we understand it is necessary at the uh, to, you know, to to make a six month projection um, as to how the entire pandemic uh, would, uh, would would pan out. Um, though you had you know only two weeks or three weeks of data in country. We understand that it's not enough, but a decision needs to be made because a tender, you know, a procurement policy, a procurement set and a request for proposal needs to go out to purchase ventilators, to purchase sufficient oxygen, to commission hospital resource beds to be to be made, field hospitals to be commissioned if they need to be um, to be built. And these are not things that can be done on a, on a two week basis. They actually need to be long term decisions. And so we have to make those projections, but put in all the disclaimers to say models are but simplification of reality they are based on the data that are that are used to inform them and the data are changing um but we had um but that's also where this constant communication and in-person communication or at least a virtual communication not just submitting a report but having meetings to do the model translation became vitally important and how did the uh, the epidemic in within south africa evolve and was it different from what we saw here in the UK? It was. It was different. I think the UK and South Africa were among the first two places to um, detect uh, almost simultaneously variants. The first time we ever detected variants, the UK had in December, I think it was 14th December or so, had announced the alpha uh, variant by the 26th of December. We had announced the beta 
variants of a different one. Um, this is twenty twenty one. We're talking about 20, now. end of twenty twenty. No, no, end of twenty twenty. Oh, so first... that's what I mean. Yes, sorry, end of twenty twenty. End of twenty twenty. We've been in pandemic state for about a year. Nearly I know a year. it's all it's all yeah. melded together now. <laughs> um, but yes, that was we, we that was the first but different variants. Um, and then we had multiple waves. It was different timing to the to the United Kingdom. Our vaccines um, arrived quite a bit later. Than the United Kingdom as well. Uh, for the again, I don't think it is any fault, um, uh, or, uh, you know, of, a, of of policy and so on. Rather, we had a, a received a shipment from the from the UK manufacturers of the AstraZeneca vaccine in December, ready to vaccinate our healthcare workers, December 2020. But the AstraZeneca vaccine at that very time, uh, the results came out of the clinical trial to show that it was simply not effective against the beta variant whilst being effective against the alpha variant. So we had a brand new shipment of vaccine that was literally not effective at all against the variant in South Africa that had taken over. And all infection, the way the variants um, manifested, because they were, each time we got a new variant, it was more, um, it was more uh, infectious. Uh, it, it, it transmitted with higher efficiency than the, the, the previous circulating variant or the wild type or ancestral COVID as we as we knew it in wave in wave one, um, that meant that there was a, a very quick takeover of the variant. It dominated transmission very quickly. And so there was literally no point in, in rolling out any AstraZeneca vaccine. It did a lot of harm to, 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 to public um to public belief in in, in government and uh, uh, harm towards vaccine hesitancy as well. Um, but it was uh, we had to wait. Uh, for 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 the, another set of vaccines that would actually be be effective, and that came a few months later. So vaccine uh, rollout was different between the United Kingdom and South Africa. South Africa was also because of our strength in um, uh, genomic surveillance. Uh, having among the best capacity in the world also for genomic surveillance, we were detecting variants uh, 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 quite, quite a lot. And so we detected uh, the um, Omicron variant in uh, December of 2020, uh, uh, is it yeah about December yeah I think December-ish of 2021 now would have been a, a Omicron um, being being detected and that was also first detected in South Africa like beta was first detected in South Africa and so we had a in South Africa what was different to the UK I would say primarily uh, even apart from vaccination is that our waves were large the Delta variant um affect uh, infected a very large number of the population that by the time Omicron had uh, had passed through the country uh, up to uh, 80 to 90 percent of the country um, had been infected by COVID-19. So would have had immunity or, or would have been zero positive for COVID-19 from uh, infection rather than vaccination. If you took vaccination into account, uh, you would have had a zero positivity of around 97 percent of the country and that came from uh, some blood bank studies and a set of other studies so we were among the first countries in the world with a with almost a fully uh, immunized population from natural infection um and, and that did, um, and how did that um i mean were your hospitals overwhelmed what was the rate of morbidity and mortality as mm -hmm. high relatively speaking as it has as it had been in the uk 
So two factors will, be, will need to be taken into account. One is we have a, a quite a bit younger population than the United Kingdom and severity across all variants and ancestral COVID was always highest in the older population. So from that perspective, um, the, the, uh, the, the, um, we, we had fewer age uh, you know, uh, age related, a uh, lower age related mortality, but but the uh, health system and access to healthcare is also very different. So from that perspective, when one looks at excess deaths compared to hospital reported deaths, so excess deaths taking into account deaths that would have been attributable to COVID, so a portion of all excess deaths that would have been attributable to COVID and um, you know taken place either at home and not yet recorded as being due to, to COVID from a reporting system, uh, the number of reported, the number of deaths was estimated to be three times the level of reported deaths. So South Africa had among the highest excess deaths estimated in the world. Um, so we suffered considerably from COVID-19 and that happened primarily during the Delta wave. The Delta wave, the Delta variant was a more severe variant and um, therefore having higher mortality than both the beta variant and ancestral COVID. So by the end of the Delta wave, when there was um, say around about 70, 70% uh, of the population now being protected or seropositive um, uh, due to natural infection, when Omicron um, hit South Africa also as a large wave, we saw much reduced severity. Um, and so our hospitals were not overwhelmed. In fact, they were hardly registering severe cases at all. Of course, severe cases did happen, and that is always unfortunate. Um, but Omicron as a whole at a population level did not manifest um, uh, anywhere as uh, severely as, uh, as the, the Delta and, uh, and previous, previous waves. Uh, and so we, where we experienced uh, hospital resources being overwhelmed was during wave one and during the beta wave and during the Delta wave. They were scattered reportings, all manifesting differently at different uh, um, geographic levels because some areas of uh, some parts of the country were affected worse during uh, certain waves. It wasn't all at the same time. And, and were the models able to anticipate some of these changes as they came along? And were, I mean, was it possible to put in place uh, non-pharmaceutical interventions that could at least mitigate the 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 severity of these waves? So we, the, in fact, the answer to that is actually yes. The models were able to anticipate quite a quite a bit of this in the, in the sense that, um, uh, and this is where I'll speak a little bit on modeling methodology and how we changed our thinking between the waves because decision-making changed. Um, our primary purpose was to support decision-making. During the first wave of COVID, the decision was primarily on, you know, can we flatten that curve? Can we achieve zero policy, I mean, zero COVID, um, you know, and have a policy towards that? Will we have enough hospital resources? Um, and, and what will that prediction be? So we spent a lot of time making projections um, uh, on, on what the wave would look like uh, for, for, for wave one. But when wave two happened and wave three and so on, we changed our modeling methodology to no longer be about trying to forecast or to project what was going to happen, but rather to do a what if scenario type analysis to say, we cannot predict what the next variant is going to be. We cannot also predict when it will 
emerge and what its characteristics are going to be. So in the face of all of that uncertainty, what we can do is to, to generate a number of what if scenarios to say something like if the next variant arrives in the next few months and it happens to be um, have a higher transmission than pre previous variants and it happens to, to have some immune loss potential, uh, and uh, uh, or not, and look at various iterations of those scenarios to make a range of projections as to whether hospital resources would be overwhelmed or not. That was the key planning information we were able to then provide provide government. Um, and so we did this in advance of the Delta wave. We did a, we released model reports on a hypothetical variant with increased transmissibility. What would its impact be? In advance of the Omicron wave, we released another report on a hypothetical variant with some immune loss as well as um, increased transmissibility. And so in that way, we were able to actually, among our scenario sets, we we actually preempted what was what in, ended up emerging. Uh, and that did help uh, did help decision making. Coming to your to your point of um, you, the, the the last part of your question on um, uh, pharmaceutical intervent non pharmaceutical non pharmaceutical non pharmaceutical interventions, or as we know now, public health and social measures um, to be to be implemented. In unlike the UK, in South Africa, we did not have data that would have allowed us to say the proportion of the population using face masks is so much, and the contribution of social distancing is so much, and uh, hand washing and hygiene practices. And so we were unable to disentangle any of the public health and social measure uh, in terms of the utilization and adoption, but also in terms of the impact. And so we chose another different methodological approach to address that, to be looking at the relative um, the relative uh, compliance, if you will, or, 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 uh, or it was really a, a two-part process of, of um, looking at the relative impact of what the government uh, restriction level was at the time, right? So the lockdown restriction level to say you cannot, um, uh, you know, face masks must be worn inside and out at outdoor activities and uh, restrictions on capacity and venues and so on, but then also take into account the population's adoption or adherence to these policies. So we looked at it all as a single measure. And when we made our scenario projections, we said, we looked at a variety of scenarios as to whether the population would maintain the same level of uh, adoption of these policies as per previous wave, and whether that would then, uh, what if it were 20% less or 50% less and so on, because it gave a sense of um, relativity. And it took into account what we would, what we know as NPI fatigue, that a population were not being as strictly adherent to social distancing and mask wearing for two years straight because we're all humans um, and fatigue would set in quite naturally. And so we adopted that relative approach rather because that was also a lot more understandable to the population. And it would have been um, what we would call spurious accuracy to try, say, there's a 20% a contribution from hand washing and a 10% contribution from, from face mask wearing and so on. Mm, mm. Um, and yes, and, um, to, to what extent was the community in um, the, the public health community in South Africa united in its approach to dealing with the the outbreak? 
So there was quite a lot. I think there's a quite uh, quite a lot in terms of the um, uh, sort of uh, the country coming coming together. I think especially in wave one, uh, with regular meetings from the from the presidency, there was no belief that we could all um, you know work through this together. Over time, of course, there will always be uh, dissenting uh, elements, um, and uh, you know with vaccine hesitancy and you know inefficiencies of government. Uh, we had a few corruption scandals in between changes of ministers of health and all of that does not speak well to um to to to, to uh, enable public uh, you know uh, uh, public goodwill um and so uh but the way we worked as as modelers is that we had a very well established decision making pipeline in the sense that as even though i was part of the modeling consortium and my group masha we were leading the model development for these models that i've just described to you now we also, I'm, I also sit on what we call the Ministerial Advisory Committee. That's akin to, to SAGE, SAGE in the, the UK. Yeah. Mm. So this Ministerial Advisory Committee has a direct line to the Minister of Health. Uh, we also, as the Modeling Consortium, had a direct line to the Minister of Health and the Presidency. And so we would we would send through this information on the evolving pandemic and um, and uh, you know and our recommendations as part of the Ministerial Advisory Committee as to what the restrictions should be. And so the, when the Presidency would communicate, there was always that scientific basis. And that background that could be uh, spoken to that that could be shared with the with the public was it ideal? No. Could it have been done better? Also, no. But were there at least attempts made? Yes. Was it better than our previous uh, experience with the HIV pandemic 10, 15 years ago? Absolutely, yes. Uh, I think you know overall uh, it was a trying time for everyone, everyone in government, and me being um, an outsider as a scientist from a from a public university working with public servants in government on a daily basis. I will be able to say that they are good people who are doing their best, and everybody was 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 working really hard and um, you know trying to work through red tape and an impossible system in an impossible situation. Um, to, to to work towards the public towards towards the public good you will not win all battles and the 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 the, the sad part of modeling and i think of, of some of the the scientific evidence that was generated is that if you if you had a model that showed doom and gloom and it is used for advocacy to generate better public health and social measure adoption and and policy creation and so on the doom and gloom may not result and then you're criticized <laughs> for having a wrong model <laughs> but uh you know that's a uh that 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 was sort of almost the point achieved um and 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 that happened multiple multiple times. There, it was not it was not always um, a, 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 ro a rosy place to be as a modeler in the in the publics. Uh, you know uh, where it, it was publicly known that you were that you were modeling. We were involved in in court cases uh, by um, sort of public action groups who were upset. Uh, you know we were involved in um, you know there were many articles in the newspaper. There were personal attacks on people. Not myself personally, but some of my colleagues had articles written about them they were often articles in the newspaper attacking us for doing um you know by even other scientists who would say you're doing all the wrong things um without actually knowing what on earth you were you were actually doing in the in the first place so one it took a long a lot of effort to one be scouring the media all the time and then having to write the your own reports 
respond to these uh, to these articles and respond to, to participate in court cases and and so on. But overall, I think that it was a it was a very positive um, it, it was a very positive experience. COVID for the world, of course, has been a, a negative experience. But positive when I say positive here, I mean from the from a scientific perspective of working with with government and, and establishing these decision-making pipelines that, that modeling isn't just beneficial to COVID, it's beneficial to health. And it is one of these um, one of these toolkits that doesn't need to just be called upon in an emergency, but can be used to support health. And so what COVID did for health management was to cement this relationship between um, all the, 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 the scientific expertise that lies at university uh, around a country and and within government, and there've been many positive um, externalities that have uh, have resulted from that, including um, a data science for health master's internship program that uh, that we've set up, where government data sets are being analyzed by master students in their dissertation for their dissertation projects, um, and these data sets wouldn't ordinarily be analyzed, but here we've got a and and you know we we are um, it benefits the students to do something meaningful, it benefits government because uh, you know. Uh, data is being analyzed and better decisions can be made and so um there's been a lot of good that has uh, has has come out of it and i think as we as we look back even over you know um, in 20 30 years from now we will see um, benefits coming not just uh, arising not just during the pandemic but actually in terms of years to come we're already seeing uh, the formation of pandemic centers uh, around the world in order to support pandemic preparedness in order to support the routine health challenges that we're facing with respect to TB and HIV and just general health systems. Um, I myself am sitting on a, on an advisory group uh, for vaccine immunization in with the WHO, WHO IVRAC implementation vaccine research advisory committee. And we are already overseeing global global work that has um, that has emerged and, and accelerated because of the of the pandemic, but to support other health functions that are not uh, not COVID related. Um, I think the wonders that have emerged from vaccine manufacturing at a you know um, at an accelerated pace compared to what we were what we were used to, we will see those benefits for many years to come. And uh, has the work that you've done? Have you been able to share the work that you've done with other low and middle income countries, or is it very specific to South Africa? Um, so during the pandemic, I did actually support um, other other countries as well through the Como Consortium based at Oxford University. I supported Mozambique during wave one uh, through my own uh, unit, uh, Mashad UCT. I supported neighboring Namibia um, as well. Um, and so the, the lessons learned have all have been shared, um, not perhaps in the traditional way of publication, those are under underway, but in more non-traditional settings of networking um, between, between groups, uh, shared seminars, shared platforms, funders have contributed a lot to the sharing of our, of our, of our work in South Africa, which has been seen as quite exemplary uh, globally for the impact that we've uh, that we've had, um, and so we've shared that with many many LMIC settings um, around around the world. Mm, mm, very good. Um, so, you you've have you now gone back? To, has your focus shifted now back to malaria again? 
Um, my focus um, through, and I think it's because of COVID-19 as well, has expanded into an, a, range of a range of diseases. Uh, we have, I'm, and I'm very happy to be back in malaria as well, but I mean, I'm working in a number of um, diseases at the moment, uh, quite a few vaccine preventable diseases. So we um, uh, just completed a project in hepatitis A, working on a, a project, a global project on LMICs for, vax, for DTP uh, booster vaccination. DTP being part of the early immunization uh, program or schedule. Um, um, diphtheria, pertussis, pertussis, is that right? Uh, yeah. Tetanus. Tetanus and pertussis, yes. <laughs> yes, whooping cough. So that a booster vaccination um, and, uh, and uh, of course, throughout, through the uh, much of the capacity building work that I do um, in, in terms of trying to develop sustainable capacity in LMICs, which is one of my passions, is training modelers from their own countries to be the experts in their, in their own countries. Um, we do a lot of, uh, a, a lot of application in a, in a range of, of countries. And, uh, and in terms of developing modeling capacity, but then also across a range of diseases. So it's, we're still doing some COVID work. We, you know, completing up grants. Um, there is still some analysis to be done in terms of future rollout of vaccines and the need for booster doses in a, in a setting with a high seroprevalence. How long might that immunity last if not challenged? What will this new family of um, Omicron subvariants lead to in the future? Certainly it does not seem to be the case that it's going to be severe infection, but what about long COVID? What about uh, future waves? Might immunity wane to a point where even protection against severe infection might wane? These are still questions that are being asked at the moment. The um, the, the, the impetus, though, is much, much reduced um, and has allowed us to shift focus into, into other diseases. So right now, it's a, it's a very healthy place for, for modeling, working across a range of diseases, supporting a number of decision makers um, across, uh, uh, across the world at the, at the moment as well. And you mentioned that you'd been in Oxford just recently uh, doing some teaching. What, what course was that? So I support the uh, Modeling for Global Health Master's Program uh, in the Northfield Department of Medicine based in the Big Data Institute, and I am the module lead on a, a course called Malaria Modeling for Strategy Design. So the purpose of the course, the purpose of the degree is to teach mathematical modeling and the application of such. My module takes um, the theoretical and foundational underpinnings that the students would have learned until that point and provides uh, an application to a particular disease area, but with one focus only in that we're modeling for policy. Now, um, to separate uh, why I say it's a separate focus on modeling in general is that you can have scientific modeling where you use your modeling to answer scientific biological questions, or you could be um, uh, using your modeling to be supporting policy decisions. And when and the type of modeling is a bit different, not just methodologically, but in how we approach the modeling. When you're modeling for policy, it involves a lot of engagement with policymakers, with reviewing of national documents, trying to understand what has happened on the ground compared to what is on a piece of paper um, and, uh, and, and so on. Uh, and so that is the course that I teach teach the students um, how to engage with, uh, with policy documentation, what it takes to build a malaria model, not just from the biological perspective, but from the entire systemic or a systems thinking perspective to take into account population behavior, geographic setting, environmental consideration, and policy setting and health system access. 
and that and includes eco economic factors as well. And economic it? factors yeah, as well. Yes. yes mm. Yeah. So this is a two week module that was taught um, for the second year running now um, at, uh, at at Oxford. And we, we had a we had a wonderful cohort of students from from around the world who deeply appreciated the course. Mm, wonderful. Well, I'm going to switch now a little bit to focus more mm. on your personal experience of the of the pandemic. So, I mean, first of all, how threatened did you feel personally uh, by the risk of infection? Um, personally, uh, I so I am actually a high risk individual, uh, as in that I'm a diabetic. Um, and so right up front, it was known that you, you know, that we would have a weakened immune systems and would be at higher risk. Um, I guess it was a good thing that I was quite so busy that I actually never left the house for a very long time because <laughs> we were working from home, even though it was not a strict lockdown uh, for more than five weeks. So we, you know, one was able to to go back into work and and so on, um, uh, and and move around. I actually I I. I protected myself by being at home for for simply being a high risk a high risk individual. Did I feel threatened necessarily? No, I will not say will not say that. I knew, for example, what would allay my fears is that I knew that masks work. I knew that social distancing works. I, you know, I had uh, being being a modeler, I had no uh, at no point did I have any disbelief towards the public health and social measures in place, nor the that the policies, nor the um, no vaccination. Um, and so uh, I, I was among, um, among the first to be vaccinated, being a high risk individual as well. So in terms of fear and, and uh, being threatened, uh, no, I won't say I felt that, but I was very much aware and, and took, the, took the desired, uh, took the appropriate, uh, the risk appropriate behavior for my, for my personal health condition. Mm -hmm. and, and what about friends, colleagues, family members? Were, were you anxious for their well-being? Uh, yes, um, I, I was. I mean, I had a. It. Um, I, I was indeed anxious for 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 their well being. Not everyone is a scientist, so not everybody understands um, the the benefits of public health and social social measures. Or, uh, or many would misinterpret what was being communicated for the simple reason that not everybody was equipped to be a health, uh, you know, a health specialist. Um, and so often I was a, a point of uh, verification. Um, to fight all the fake news that was abounding among amongst all the WhatsApp groups, um, and I was the um, I was uh, so I was at point of contact. I was the uh, uh, so a point of, of verification, and um, it did become quite uh, I, I guess you could say scary or rather saddening uh, at a point where during the beta epidemic, as I mentioned earlier, various parts of of the country were affected. Uh, worse during some waves, simply because they had not been affected badly in a previous wave, meaning um, you had a greater proportion of, of the population being susceptible um, in that space. So during the beta wave, the on the east coast um, uh, of the country in the um, uh, Eteguini uh, or, or, or the KwaZulu-Natal province uh, of the country, which is where I'm from, uh, that province was particularly badly hit. At the height of December in our summer, um, by the beta by the beta variant, uh, which was transmitting despite everybody being outdoors, um, and so having not having much of a seasonal effect. And during that time, it was a it was a period of where every every day or every one and a half days, somebody I knew passed away. Um, and being Indian, 
by by heritage, our uh, familial relationships extend quite a little, quite a lot further than one's immediate family. So somebody could be related to you being twice, thrice removed, one might say, or along seven or eight familial um, uh, uh, linkages, and still be well known to you. So by virtue of having a larger community and knowing, therefore, more people. Um, it 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 was um it, it happened that every day or every one and a half day somebody I knew passed away and that was a devastating time. It was a, 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 a very bad on your psyche. At the same time, we were protected in the sense of being so busy that because the whole country is in a panic and death is abounding, but you know what your responsibility is as a modeler. You've got to get um at that point with the beta way, we were my my group, Marsha, we set up the dashboard for the government that would allow the government planners and the public for the first time to see cases that were the cases, deaths and hospitalizations around the country. At, up until that point of uh, it had been 10 months into COVID, it, everything was at a national and a provincial level, not at um, a city sort of level or suburb level. And the government had no capacity to create such a dashboard. The data were there, but they had no capacity. And so I approached them to say, would you like us to do it? And in two weeks, we created this national, this dashboard for the country. And so we knew the work that, that, that and the analysis that had to be done. We were updating that dashboard um, three times a week. So all of this pressure was on us to perform this work. So the rest of the country would have knowledge and be able to plan their, 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 their travel and their day-to-day their, their -day activity better. Um, and that helped to protect us from some of the grief we might have experienced had we um, been sitting at home and waiting for information um, and not being as involved as we as we were. Um, and that, and I will say that that was a, that was actually quite protective for us. That enabled us to to experience some of that grief um, just a, a you know a couple of months after it happened. I did lose very close family members um, immediately, uh, sort of shortly after that. Uh, within a space of two weeks, I lost my grandmother and uh, and my cousin, my cousin from a very young cousin at the age of forty from a COVID related. Um, post incident. Um, my grandmother actually at the age of 91 had COVID-19, was asymptomatic, she beat it, and then a, um, a 10 months or so later passed away of old age. Um, so that was not necessarily um, a, a sad, a sad generally, but not a, a COVID-related uh, event. Um, so that was, I think, a, a, from a personal perspective, that I think was the most trying time of the, of the pandemic. So you said you were you were so busy. I mean, you were working. I mean, you sound to me like somebody who works all the time anyway. But were you working <laughs> longer hours than you normally do? Um, yes. I, so, so granted, the work that we do is, you know, does mean that we we do we we we're working, you know, all the all the time. But I think to that that phrase of working all the time, it's it was different pre pandemic. During the pandemic, I was working what you would colloquially call an all nighter. Uh, and quite literally working throughout the night um, at least twice or thrice a week, especially during wave one when the Minister of Health or, or the, um, the people directly under the Minister of Health are texting you every morning, we are the models, we need it now, testing you personally, not through the coordinating mechanism of your colleagues who are for this consortium, but you personally having to generate um, you know, the, this, this work, knowing the weight of the country, uh, the weight of decision making that's now being placed on almost on your on your head, and then the pressure from the media that was on us. Um, I was working throughout the night several times a week 
for a period of two years. It was, uh, it, it was extremely challenging from that perspective. It was challenging from a psychological perspective. So in wave one, um, for, the, for the first couple of weeks, my, my team were assisting me in developing the, the models. I have a very young team. So they were assisting me in procuring information. So reading through papers and having and getting the, in understanding, working through the literature in developing on the computing side, developing pipelines and outputs and so on. But the actual model development I was doing by, my, by myself. Also, it wasn't the kind of weight and the, present, the presentation of such is not the kind of weight I could place on very young individuals when you're up against um, you know, stakeholders, the likes of the presidency and, uh, and, and so on. So the, the, however, a few weeks into the pandemic, you could start to see the psychological impact that it was having on my team. Um, when it came, we had to we had to support some some um, functions that I guess we never thought as models we would be doing, for example, helping uh, people in government plan burial sites. During the during the wave, in supporting the, the the procurement of mortuary containers at hospitals, working through presentations where people were showing you pictures of bodies in mortuaries that were now overflowing or just being stacked at the back because they weren't enough enough space and and, and so on. Um, and uh, there was one morning where that just became too much for my for my team, and I had a, a, a received WhatsApp text saying, "I want to be a warrior. I want to be like you, but I can't wake up." I can't get up. And at that point, I said, all right, guys, two weeks, you're, you're all off. Just just take take your time off. You all relax. I could not afford myself that, that, that break because I still needed to, to pick up the helm. I then organized, and with the, I'm very grateful to my university for supporting me in this, that they organized group therapy and individual therapy sessions for my, for my team to take us through that, uh, take us through that time. It was absolutely beneficial. Um, I still pushed pushed through and at that from that point onwards though I also I, I held back with my with my team I reduced their their um involvement in terms of that sort of that day-to-day -day, uh horror show that was COVID at the at the time I took that on myself um and just helped them to uh just adjust psychologically uh from 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 that mm, mm. and did you did you um take advantage of any therapy yourself I did when the university provided that uh, provided that uh, service. I did. I wanted to take advantage of it for longer, um, and to uh, I just at that time, I, yes. I could not. Yes. I could not find the find the time. But I had my own personal coping coping mechanisms as well. I think the 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 fact that we were doing this for a purpose is itself very much a coping mechanism. That it's for a greater, it's something altruistic. It's for a greater good. We were not ever paid to do any of this COVID work. In fact, when um, the chief director of health of the National Treasury approached me first in early March, 2020 to ask me, will you develop a COVID model? Well, his second question to me was, well, you know, how much will you charge? What can we pay you? And I said, oh no, don't worry. This is a national service. I'll do this for the, for the country. You won't have to pay me taxpayers' money to do something like this as a, as a service of the country. Also not thinking it would be two years as well. <laughs> um, but uh, that being said, um, no, we would never have taken money. It was also important for us to be to not be funded by government when you're providing evidence and support to government because it it adds to the um, objectivity of the scientific process and the uh, and the function that you are that you are serving. 
Um, so I wasn't able to take advantage of that. Copy mechanisms, I wish I was able to do more exercise. I did not, but I had my uh, my yoga. I did a lot of um, uh, Hindu uh, scientific breathing exercises called pranayama. Um, and honestly, I think that's what kept me kept me alive. I'm a devout Hindu. Uh, and so um, having the the support structure of my faith is really what uh, what kept me going. I was always I was always cognizant though of my health, knowing that um, I did uh, at the end of um, the malaria investment case in 2018 that we did in South Africa. I needed uh, this is amusing, I guess now maybe not so much at the time. I needed to also spend um, all nighters in generating um, to generate the the evidence for by the required time frames. But my diabetic medication was putting me to sleep at night and preventing me from staying up all night. So I was skipping my medication to stay up and to perform the work. And skipping your medication leads to your immune system being compromised. And I got really sick. And I ended up in hospital at the end of 2018. And I learned my lesson. So all throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, I took my medication judiciously and I still managed to do the all-nighters. And so that's what protected me. In fact, even when my husband at home, um, who's asthmatic, when he got COVID-19 during the Delta wave, um, I tested with PCR, a highly sensitive test twice and was not, um, I had only one Pfizer vaccine at the time and I did not uh, contract it. So my medication paired with one vaccine was uh, was working for me. So um, I was I was very glad for that. I I knew the I knew that the sacrifice that was being made that helped me cope, but it also helped me um, prior experience with my medication and understanding of my health helped me to cope responsibly. That's very good, very good story. <laughs> um, so I I think we've worked through everything, unless there, uh, unless there are any particular anecdotes or stories that mm -hmm. you remember from that time that uh, you know you'll tell your grandchildren about oh gosh I think you know, this there's so much to there is so much to to reflect to reflect on and one um uh, I think I'll go through a series of reflections here so <laughs> one is it's it's an it was an honor that I will, I will, I will always say it was an honor to be able to serve my country and the countries I did, uh, the other countries that I supported, in this way. To be able to to make a difference, to be able to be part of the scientific communication. the The goal of modeling is not to have your decision maker listen to what your model said and enact that. Though they did it multiple times, I think the ben, the, the 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 goal of modeling is to have your evidence heard before decision makers and for them to weigh up your evidence along with all the other sources of evidence that your model is not accounting for and then to make an overall decision. So the fact that we were able to establish that pipeline and be part of that decision-making process several times over, um, I think is, has, has been um, uh, one of the biggest highlights uh, of, my, of, my, of my career and will I think remain, remain so hopefully in my lifetime and my working life and there isn't another pandemic that I have to deal with that would surpass the impact that we've had in this one. So I will say that that will always be a highlight of, of my career. It was uh, additionally um, 
a highlight to present to um, a, a different set of stakeholders than one is used to. Usually when one is doing policy facing modeling, there is a group of decision makers who are part of government or part of a, a NITAG, uh, an immunization uh, uh, advisory group uh, or also on. Uh, in this case, you are presenting to a presidency, a cabinet of ministers. I did one very interesting presentation before a panel of high court judges or chief justices, which was a, which was an incredible experience uh, because I've never been, I've never had to present in a court setting like that where you're interrogated by a, by a chief justice. This was with respect to the question of whether we should be um, hosting uh, um, uh, elections or, or not and the and the and you know the the impact of rallying and having political campaigns prior to that and the, and the effect of uh, of transmission what it would do to to transmission and and, and so on um it was a wonderful experience because i got to be interrogated by a non-scientist in a most thorough way um and i uh, and it was a wonderful learning experience for me but also a very enjoyable enjoyable one um, I think uh, it, uh, on a personal note, uh, or perhaps let me come to the personal notes in a little bit, one more scientific note that I think will, um, that will be one of the key lessons that emerged from, from COVID-19, from, from this pandemic experience is as a modeler that one needs to know when is the right time to model. Um, during the beta, when the beta variant first emerged in December of 2020, the um, we didn't know what it was going to, how it was going to manifest, what its characteristics were going to be. We just knew that it was there, um, and so government immediately asked us, you know, what will the size of the pand of this next wave be? What can we expect? And our questions were, we do not think it is responsible to model because we do not know what those. Um, features of the variant are going to be. The modeling that that I do is mechanistic. So it takes cause. It is not statistical modeling where one can look at associations and trends in data. Rather, it is mechanistic and causal that uh, a variant that is more transmissible will lead to more, to more infections um, and so on. And so if you do not know if it is in fact more transmissible and you put in an incorrect assumption, then you're going to be, your model will produce nonsense. Um, and so we made a decision to change methodology instead of actually using standard mechanistic models to develop a different kind set of models that would be more statistical and not reliant on cause. Um, and that proved very much to our benefit. Because even prior to the to the detection of the beta variant, we had to be making developing these, these models and so on. So knowing when it, it's a very brave decision to be saying this is the, the chief um, tool in my toolkit and I'm electing not to use it. It's I think it was Maslow who had said uh, you know that it is um it is tempting to um that if you have a hammer to treat everything as if it were a nail uh, and uh, without we've got to be careful as modelers to not to not employ the same methodologies um all, all the time regardless of the situation it's a lesson that I think will be relevant even in 20 or 30 years time that every country is different every situation is different and so you have to evaluate each situation individually to know what is the appropriate scientific method to to apply and um, so that definitely i think is um, something to to reflect to reflect on um i think what's uh, another uh, another highlight is uh, the importance of communication that um, that modeling um, and I, th I think it speaks to science in general, but I'll speak from a modeling perspective, that modeling is a package. 
sometimes it's least about the model itself and developing the model. It's about the interaction. It's about the how you package your 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 model results. Gone are the days where someone in government has a time to read a fifty-page report. Um, you, if you're generating a presentation, it needs to have your conclusions on each slide. It can't be a standalone picture and where the interpretation is left up to the reader. Um, you know the, that we've got to we have to adapt and adjust very quickly with the different and new modes of communication. We've got to be the whole package if you want to be a modeler. During this time, entire this pandemic, I've done any number of radio interviews and television interviews. And um, the thing that benefited me the most there in being confident to run to, to do these press releases and, and press conferences was in fact my school experience of being a national debater as a national schools debating champion. It served me really well. And my experience as a lecturer at university meant that, you know, being able to to communicate clearly and explain uh, quite high level science in a in a way that is digestible uh, to the public uh, and to and to decision makers as well non experts i think was a was a skill that needs to be developed and and inculcated in in the new generation of scientists and models and one that can't cannot be understated um, and so that I think is a is definitely something that will still be of relevance in uh, in in the next few few decades. Uh, on a personal note, I think looking back, um, the we will be highly amused to be recollecting what a wonderful time the pandemic was for our pets at home. Um, <laughs> my my brood at home. I don't have human children, but I do have seven cats and four dogs, uh, two ducks and three chickens. Um, and um, my brood at home, my cats and my dogs could not have been happier to have had me at home for, for two years. Ordinarily, I'm traveling for at least three months a year in different pockets throughout the year. So these children were thrilled. And I think um, we'll, we'll see the, uh, you know, we'll be looking back fondly um, at, the, at, at this time for, for, that, for that experience. I think it's a lovely place to stop. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Georgina. It's been wonderful too.